Right now, Bet365 offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football for the next few weeks, with games being played nearly every day. And with Bet365's Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live, with Bet365 Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. The only way to score is, of course, to play... uh is a handbrake off. Hello, this is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by The Athletic. I'm joined this week by Amy Lawrence, James McNicholas and Lee Dixon. Hello, everyone. Hi, yeah. Hey, guys. Hello. Nice to speak to you all. Um, everyone's mm. feeling quite upbeat at the moment, I, I feel. We are, we are recording this, uh, listeners, on the day after... Uh, we drew uh, 1-1 with Leicester City to end our uh, amazing winning run. Although hopefully it will continue on uh, the weekend when we got Spurs away. And we'll definitely talk about that. One of the things that I wanted to talk about, uh, Emmy Martinez has come in since the Brighton game, uh, since that snide challenge from uh, Mopay. And, uh, and he has replaced Bernd Leno and done very, very well. Uh, so we wanted to ask, uh, who, given the chance... Uh, could have had a career at Arsenal if they'd have got in the team and, um, you know, established themselves a little bit more. Uh, Lee, I'll start with you. Oh, no. <laughs> no. I'm, I'm, very un- I'm very unprepared today, I have to admit. <laughs> so all these questions, although I have received text messages from uh, our glorious producer, yeah. I completely ignored all of them. And That's what so we all do. <laughs> I'm, I'm moving house, so I've just sat amongst a load of um, odd chairs and, and boxes and then thought, I wonder what we're talking about today. So now that's the first time. What, what was the question again? You know what, Amy, who, given a chance, <laughs> could have... Lee, we'll come back to you. Who, given a chance, okay. could have had a career at Arsenal? Uh, I think the one player that I, ha- I feel regretful about, he did have a career, but not the career that I hoped he would have, is Abu Dhabi. Mm, um, that's my pick. Who? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's a good call. Over to you. That Lee. is a good call. Well, also, also, it's a great call. And sorry to interrupt, Amy. You can have your say about him. But my my because he had my shirt on, so I was more than happy for him to get the number two shirt because I thought he was a really good player. So unfortunately, he didn't have my um, injury record. He got the exact opposite. Um, and unfortunately, his his body gave way, which is really. A big shame. Lee, do, do you have feelings about uh, shirt numbers? Some people are really funny about this, like, you know, a certain player should or shouldn't wear a shirt, a certain shirt number because of associations with the position. Do you think, I'm a bit uncomfortable with Abu Dhabi wearing number two because I like the guy and I like him yeah. having my shirt, but he's a midfield player, he's not a right back. What's going on no, there? Did you have I, that um, or do you not I, care? Yeah, I'm quite old-fashioned that I think everybody should be one to 11. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, those um, days are gone, and Sorry. And I and I became I did become very protective of uh, the shirt when I gave it up um, when I retired and it, and it was kind of wandering around the ether for a little bit 
and then D- I think Diaby got it, and then it was then it it was made redundant again, and then I know that um, Hector was uh, quite keen on on taking it up, and um, you know, and I, I, obviously with him being a right back, it was but yeah, I'd like that to to wander over to that side of the pitch. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, I'm I'm hugely protective of the number two. And, you know, if anybody pinches my credit cards, then 2222 two, two, two is the, uh, you know, two... Two is very prominent in my uh, in my life. Everything I do is kind of number two. I wear, um, I use number two golf balls and I don't number three because I can't, you know, Nigel Winterburns go left when I hit it off the tee. So, You're not making this um, up, are you, by the way? This no, is it's actually, actually no, yeah. And, and, I've do, and my new house that I've just bought randomly um, is number two. Randomly, yeah, right. Of <laughs> course. <laughs> <laughs> No, well, I live at number 28 at the moment, which I'm trying to knock the eight off the wall as we speak. Um, actually, I've just had a, te- a text from uh, Ty, our producer, who said, uh, William Gallas, number 10. Exactly. And he, did use, he did use an expletive in there as well. But I'm, not, I'm not actually over that, I have to admit. All these years yeah. later, uh, you know, it's, it's very incorrect. Who is got, who's got over Steve Bold number 10, 1989? <laughs> That's in different. Nobody's no, see, got over that. No, I like that, actually. Uh, you see, there's a difference between Bowley being number 10 and William Gallas being number 10. Well, because you had to be 1 to 11 in those days. There yeah, wasn't an option. You couldn't just choose a number. Uh, it would have, you could, even the substitutes had to be 12 to start with or 12 or 14. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 13 obviously was, you know. Rah! Sorry, Amy, can I just jump in and say there are people under 30 listening to this going, <laughs> what are they on about? <laughs> My favourite player is number 904. Saka 77. Well, yes. And hey, we like that. What about you, James? A player who could have, um, given a chance, could have had a career at Arsenal. Well, he's not doing too bad for Bayern Munich, so I'll have to say Serge Gnabry, I think. (laughs) Um, Not good enough for West Brom, though, was it? No, it was not good enough for Tony Pulis in West Brom. I mean, look, there are lots of reasons players don't get opportunities and fitness was part of it for, for him. Competition was the part of it. But I mean, when you look at what he's gone on to do, it is, of course, a shame that he didn't quite make the grade at Arsenal. I'm going to be controversial now. Go on. Go on. I'm going to throw. I'm going to throw in Michael Thomas. Mm. What? Does it really? Didn't yeah. have the career I'm... at Arsenal that he might have done. Well, he was only there five minutes, wasn't he? Literally, you know, if you look at '89, he left in what was he leaving? Ninety-one. One or two. Yeah. Yeah. So. You know, he, he wasn't a, he wasn't if he'd have stayed at Arsenal and been what he was in '89, and he would have been, you know, he went to Liverpool and arguably they'll say, you know, was he so he wouldn't have been a, he'd have been more successful at Arsenal. It's an interesting point because I mean I guess he's remembered for for the moment, isn't he? You know, more than he is for like a sustained career with the club. Yeah, because he wasn't in the he wasn't in the team. You know, he, he was a young lad. He wasn't in the team a lot before. When did he make his debut? He, so he was starting to play just as I was signing, which was eighty eight. Um, he was playing right back. He did. He did become a regular round about nineteen eighty seven. So it's not like he. I think five minutes is a slight rewriting of history. Five years in, in the context five, what, of no, Lee's career. I'm, I'm so, hang on, hang on. I'm talking about a career. At, if you're going to be, if you were talking about people having a career at us, I'm talking eight, nine years, eight, nine, ten years. That's a that's a proper career. It's not a flash in a pan, three or four years. If he, if he got in the team in 87 and he left in 90... 91. Slash 91. I mean, it's only four years. 
So that's not a career, is it? That's like, that's like five minutes in my book. Well, this has gone in a very, very different direction <laughs> to how I imagined it would. Um, I was actually going to mention um, uh, Matthew Upson uh, as a player that I thought could have done more for us. I really liked the way he played, but he never, yeah. he never quite made the grade, did he? I mean, Lee, mm. did you play with him? Yeah, a lot in lots of times. He was a really good footballer. The thing with Matty was he's made of biscuits. You know, he he turned round and he <laughs> yeah. he'd pull something, his foot had hurt or something. He was one of those that had a lot of niggly injuries. And I think as he as he went through his career post Arsenal, he got some really good medical guys um long after I'd retired, but the you know, sports science started to become more prominent and he got people he was talking about a guy who used to look after him and make sure that his body was right, a lot of stretching, a lot of alignment stuff that he was doing. And, and I think he was a lot better towards the end of his career. But by that time, he'd obviously moved on. So I always felt that Matt, he was, he was quick. He he read the game well. And, and based on where he was at and who he had around yes. him around that time, yes. that back four, he could have learned all, all of that stuff and, and taken over from... You know that you know he could have been the next Martin Keown and the next TA, and he could have done that. But I, I think he t his body just let him down a little bit. That's a good shout, Ian. I think. Thank you, thank you very much. Uh, I thought of it. Not as good as my one. <laughs> Your what? You mean Amy's <laughs> one? I think is what you mean. But yes. No, my, my Michael Thomas. It's just oh. shaking the bag right up. That has. <laughs> Has, I've, had a, I've had to have a sit down, Lee. I'm, I'm feeling a little bit strange. <laughs> Lee would have done as well. He hasn't got anything to sit on at the moment. <laughs> Harry's sponsors Handbrake Off, a podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave, a weighted ergonomic handle, five precision-engineered blades, rich, lathering shave gel, and a travel blade cover. I haven't been shaving for a while. Right now, I look a little bit like Saddam Hussein is when he came out of the hole. But some people are still keeping their standards up. And if you're one of them, as a listener of Handbrake Off, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for £3.95. Support our podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash off right now. That's harrys.com forward slash off now uh, we do obviously uh, we could talk a little bit about Leicester last night one aspect of the game one aspect of the game Eddie and Ketty are getting sent off um, I mean I'm just generally going round the uh, the group was it a red card I mean I'm just put my I would say it probably was particularly slowed down but other people feel differently Amy I felt it was uh, at the time and I was one of the lucky ones in the stadium um it was it was one of those where sort of you you saw him what looked like going for a ball that he wasn't necessarily going to get um, because he didn't see where the other player was but we could and uh, I did I didn't think it was a difficult one to argue with to be really honest I felt sorry for him because I don't think he meant to I think he'd just come on it was difficult conditions and uh, but I think it's probably one he has to take on the chin and learn from. 
Lee, is it also the case about the way, I think it was James Justin, wasn't it, the Leicester player, the way he received the ball? If he'd have gone in for that ball, it, they probably would have come off 50-50. He might have got a booking for having his foot raised, but that would have been it. But the fact that he sort of turned side on and he's, he sort of pr- almost presented his leg to where Nketiah was going, do you think that made it worse? The game is trying to um, clean itself up in regard to major injuries. And if you allow players to to make tackles like that without being red carded, then you run the risk of serious injury. So that's what that's why those those rules and the intent has been taken out and went for the ball and all those excuses that we used are not there anymore. And so in that respect, it, you know, it has to get a red card for that. James, would you concur with that? Yeah, I think it's a red card. It's one of those where Same. I feel for Eddie. Because, yeah, it is a shame for him. He's going to miss three games, probably, as a consequence. And he's not hes not meant any harm at all. He's just following manager's instructions. Get stuck in, put yourself about, close people down. But I think in the, in the modern game, that is a red card. Quite. Uh, now, one of the games he's going to miss is the North London derby. Uh, away at the uh, at the toilet bowl, as we all now call it, at, uh, at the new Tottenham Stadium on Sunday. Um, we wanted to talk about this in a bit more detail. Uh, I mean, I said to James, we had a little chat this morning, uh, that it's the North London derby away at Spurs is really the most visceral experience that I think an Arsenal fan could have. Uh, James, have you, did you go at White Hart Lane? Yeah, yeah, a few times. Uh, my, probably the, the time I recall most fondly. I mean, I have to say, if you've never been to a derby at White Hart Lane as a supporter, it's not. Uh, it's quite. It can be quite a harrowing experience. It's like not it's not a nice day. No, yeah. not at all. It's great if you come away with the victory. Of course, there's nothing better. And probably my favourite recollection of it is. I don't know if anyone remembers the game in 2007. Arsenal won three one there. It was the start. I don't of believe quite... you're going to say that. That was my pick, James. <laughs> really. <laughs> Well, I was there. I was in. The, I was in the away fans, and I was at the at the side. So I was right by the Spurs fans, separated by just a sort of little gap. And it was a fantastic game for Arsenal. And scored, they scored two screamers that day. Fabregas from about thirty yards, and then in the oh. last minute, Adebayor set the seal on it. Three-one. Brilliant, brilliant volley. And it's just when you're in that seat with that proximity to the to the rival fans, it really is going to go one of two ways for you, isn't it? Do you know what I mean? Like, if, if, it, <laughs> if it goes against you, there's nothing worse. But if it goes for you, oh, it's just the best. And that is my finest memory from that particular stadium. Amy, you were going to talk about that game. That was a, um, Adebayor. When he, could, when he played, he really played. And that was a fantastic goal, wasn't it? It really was. But earlier on, when there was some pinging around in the WhatsApp group about what we talk about and, you know, particular memories of games at at White Hart Lane. And I thought, well, I've talked about a few of these before on this pod, you know, some notably famous, famous ones like 2004 and so on. And the reason I remember that 2007 one so well was uh, uh, I I had a a one week old son. And that was his first game since being born. And anyone who goes through parenthood at some point, if you are a football fan, that first game feels important. You know, the first game of your child's life, uh, especially if you're as idiotically obsessed about a football team as most of us are. And um, it was a completely mad game. And I was sat there watching my... I had obviously put my my newborn in an Arsenal baby (laughs) grow, because you would, wouldn't you? And it was a beautiful, sunny September day. And uh, we watched the game. Well, we, I mean, I watched the game and, and uh, sort of paid attention to to, to, to my son. And um, 
there was like 50 chances in this game. If you watch uh, some highlights on YouTube about a 10 minute highlights package, and it's absolutely full of action at both ends of the pitch. Uh, there's one moment of Almunia goalkeeping. My God, you know, you forget these things. Um, and then uh, uh, Tottenham were ahead and leading for quite a lot of the game, even though Arsenal had bags and bags of chances. Uh, Adebayo had actually missed a lot of them before that wonder goal. And um, it was quite late uh, comeback to win it. And you could see from the way James described it, it was one of those great days at White Hart Lane with phenomenal celebrations, and that, that communion between the players and, and going over to that corner. And uh, I just remember thinking, life doesn't get much better than this. You know, you've won an old London derby. Look at this, son. You know, you, your first game alive. You can't do much better than going over their place and winning. So, no. yeah, that's what I remember about it. Lee, I mean, you obviously, when you joined, Spurs were, were they the biggest rivals or was it Manchester United by then? I mean, obviously the Tottenham games meant a lot, but was it really the biggest game of the season? Um, yeah, in one way, because of obviously the rivalry. I don't think that, that certainly was pretty prominent most seasons. I was at Arsenal, I think it sort of faded, faded a little bit and it has done with the introduction of the foreign players over the years. There's a diluted effect on that but yeah it was always the biggest game and I, I I grew to absolutely love the North London derby to the point of you've got and it's a similar to what James was saying about being a supporter you have you have got to uh, run the risk of being hugely embarrassed and um, exposed uh, for, for who you are by losing that game but the benefits on the flip side of it are so big and um, I'm willing to take that opportunity. And I mean, what I mean by that is when I when we used to go on the coach to White Hart Lane, it was pretty hostile. I'm sure it's more hostile for the fans. We, you know, we've got a coach around us and police keeping the fans away. But, you know, sit right next to the window, look out the window at the Tottenham fans, you know, front them up. It's going to be a big day. And by doing that, you run the risk of when, you know, hum eating humble pie when you lose and they're all giving you stick at the end of the game on the coach when you're leaving. But I was willing to tell most, you know, most of the teammates I played with were willing to take that chance because the flip side of that, when you win and you've fronted them and said, no, we are, we are the Arsenal. We've come to your place and we're going to beat you. There's no better feeling than going to the Lions' den and taking three points like that. And that's why those games were so, so special. Even probably a different special than playing Man United, the, the biggest rivals for the for the trophy at the end of the season. Going to Tottenham doesn't matter. You, you literally don't look at the league. You never look at the league table to go, well, if we get there, they might go two points behind. It doesn't matter. You could be right in the bottom of the league. If you beat Tottenham, and it, that's how it was, if you beat Tottenham, then let's let's have it. Stick your chest out. Be prepared to take absolute dog's abuse on that pitch. There's no doubt that you're going to get it. But stick, you know, look everybody in the eye. Look all the fans in the eye and say, we are the Arsenal. We're here and we're going to take three points. And if you don't, you know, stick your hand up and say, we weren't good enough today and then run. <laughs> Lee, um, can you share the story of your first North London derby at White Hart Lane and how it was in that dressing room? Because that's quite instructive. Yeah, I mean, I've told it a million times, but it never it never fades in my memory of being basically threatened by 
most of the, the the boys in the in the in the dressing room were <laughs> either London or North London, so some of the you know South London boys. But it was it was Tottenham meant so much to them, and you know looking looking at me in the eye before we go out and basically saying if you don't play well, you're in big trouble from us lot. Let alone the you know the the fans out there and the team you're going to play against. And I was thinking about who I'm marking, you know. Who've we got today? Da, da, da. And they're just like, no, you look at us now. I mean, remember Paul Davis, Michael Thomas, Dave Rocastle, blessing, Tony Adams, uh, Martin. They all kind of looked at me and went, right, you've got to book up now. You're a northerner and you don't really get this. And I was like, no, I do, honestly. I know what it's all about. I played in the Wrexham Chester derby. I know what derbies are all about. <laughs> and they went, no, you don't understand. I walked out on the pitch and I was absolutely petrified. I didn't. I really didn't want to let the the boys down. And I made sure that you know I'd, I'd please them more than anything. And if they're happy, then we've got a good chance of winning the game. And I just really hope now that the players get this that same feeling because there's something really special about being that scared before a game in a good way. You know, nervous energy that you go you use that to your benefit. And uh, and there was no other game like it for me apart from the Tottenham game. As fans, the way Lee is talking about the game there, he sounds more like a fan than he does for when he talks about a lot of football games. Yeah, I, well, I think it, there is that trepidation for everyone. I mean, I, I don't know what you're like, Ian, but the week before a North London derby I game, it. I have that slightly sick feeling in the pit oh, of my yeah. stomach because yeah. the stakes are so high and the stakes, you know, if you live in North London, are especially high because you're going to encounter a load of fans of the opposition if you get the wrong result. But it, it, it is incredibly high tension day I, I've, I can't you know we could talk about all these games on reflection and talk about highlights and moments we loved but I'd, I'd be lying if I said I truly enjoyed them when they were happening because there was just too much adrenaline going on really to to pick them out I don't know if you're the same Amy oh I usually <laughs> just hate them until they're over um, <laughs> there's yeah. only there's only very few examples of matches where you actually find yourself looking at mate at your mates or whatever with that luxury of like wide-eyed happiness during the actual game it's usually only sort of if you get the win and then there's the final whistle and there's a sort of joy and relief and um reaction to the opposition and so on and then after that's passed, you can kind of stop and and ah, and really soak it up. But it, it, you know, it's there's I think one or two of the five twos, or there's been the odd game. They're usually home games um, where there's quite a, you know you're quite comfortable and and there's the three 0 where Thierry Henry scored that goal, and you're pretty sure it's not going to go the wrong way. Um, that you're able to actually relax. Yeah even for a moment during the game, because normally you just feel like horrific, like physical pain almost, uh, hatred of yourself <laughs> as well as everything around you. So, um, no, usually pretty <laughs> glad when it's over. But I was interested by what Lee said about having about the players having that fear and it being kind of healthy. And, and in, in that sense of you always feel that you want people in the club or people... Uh, in the dressing room to be able to, to pass it. that on to players who mm. might be new or might be young or whatever. And I'm thinking about the current team going to this game on the weekend and thinking, mm. who are the guys that can say what is necessary? Um, I certainly think Hector Bellerin and to an extent, Emmy Martinez, having been there a very long time, Saka should be as able well. to pass on a bit of that. Absolutely. In fact, there's a, a clip of Saka scoring in a, I think, under 18s game against 
um, Tottenham and sort of cupping his ear at the crowd, you know. Oh. Uh, even <laughs> even then, you know, with with that. Well, I say the crowd. Obviously, not that much of a crowd at that period, but you know, they they know they know. Well, I think I, I think our you know Arteta being you know he's he's been there, he's done it, he's seen it. He's uh, hopefully with what we're mm. you know what we've witnessed so far with him being in charge of the club, we 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 all feel as if he's got some sort of in on the on the on, you know on the Arsenal bit and then the traditions and everything. He seems to have that in his in him as a person. So hopefully that when that game comes up and he's not that type of manager who just goes, you know, it's just another game. Absolute rubbish. It's not just another game. And yeah. you and you should have opportunities to be able to pick certain games and go, right, this is that's not to say that you you you're less lesser focus. It's a completely different focus. It's not that you're Oh, we're playing whoever. We're playing Leicester, so we're not quite as up for it because we're not playing. There's a different focus to a derby game, and uh, and I think as a player, you need to you need to each game that you're playing, you need to find the something that it is that gets you to the to the next level, and the next level is playing for Arsenal at that highly competitive. I'm talking about when I played, you know, I, I'm only sharing an experience from me. I had to pick every single game. I'd go, right, we're not, I haven't got, we're playing Leicester, for instance. We're not playing Tottenham, which is self-motivation because the, the dressing room's absolutely flying. So there might not be that quite energy in the dressing room. So how am I going to do it? So I'd, I would pick the player I'm playing against and I'd make sure that that week I'd watch a little bit more video about that player because and watch all these good bits not his bad bits, just get, pick out his good bits and go, wow, I'm really up against it here. And that would get me to that level because it's, it's, it's not a switch. You can't just go, oh, yeah, I've got a game, switch it on, off you go. You've, the, you're human beings and sometimes your biorhythms are really low. You've had a bad week. You've not slept particularly well. You've, you've maybe eaten a bit differently. And so you're not quite as, you know, you've had a, a bad week in training for whatever reason. You've been carrying a knock or something. So you have to get yourself to the to the peak of your ability on that three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. And however you get there is the right way for you. It must be especially important for this derby of all others that people within the group, within the coaching staff or the playing staff, find those kind of motivational insights because so much of what we associate yeah. with the North London derby comes from the crowd, right? And there isn't going to be one on Sunday. So, I mean, I watched the Merseyside derby right when football restarted and I, I don't think it had anything like the intensity you would expect from that game. So it's going to be really interesting to see, you know, if they are able to produce mm. like a, a properly intense performance on, on this stage. Just on the subject of this North London derby, um, there is something really important to throw into this conversation. Uh, Ian, remember when you said that you wanted Jose Mourinho <laughs> to be the Arsenal manager? Yeah, yeah. Just can we re revisit that thought at the present moment? I, we certainly can. Um, I was wrong. <laughs> I couldn't. I couldn't have been more wrong. It won't be. It wasn't the first time. It definitely won't be the last. Listen, in my defence, actually, you know what? There is no defence. I don't know what the hell I was thinking for one solitary second. We were in a bad place, Ian. We were I was in a, in a bad, bad place. place. I haven't done stand-up for about I mean, three months. I'm missing bad it. and there's really bad place. Well, okay, <laughs> we've, we've all made mistakes in our lives and that was a biggie. It, it, all I would say is I'm glad I'm not in charge and I actually would have appointed him at that point. But yeah, that was um, that was a massive mistake. And, and, and my God, it's fun to see how big a mistake that would have been.
right? Uh, just just uh, so you know, Ian, we, yeah. we're not we're not going to forget that one, right? So. I I'm <laughs> sensing that is the case. I'm I am sensing that is the case. I'm no, I'm delighted, Lee. I wanted to ask one question before we let you go. Did you play in the Return of Sol Campbell game? No. At at, uh, at no. the lane, did you play in that game? No, because did anyone, Amy? Did you go to that game? Uh, I think I did. Yes. I mean, was that because we talk about I, I must say I, I do enjoy the atmosphere, what James was saying about the atmosphere at White Hart Lane. And I'm assuming in the new stadium when when the crowds turn up, I, I do like the, the electricity of the atmosphere mm. in those uh, in those games. It's obviously dangerous for the fans, but I, I'm not sure there's ever been a more hateful atmosphere at a football match that I've ever seen. Well, I do recall talking to a few of uh, Seoul's teammates about that particular day, and it definitely made a big impression on them. And <laughs> remember Dennis saying that he he was scared and uh, a lot of the players actually when they go go out to do their pre-match warm-up and they sort of you know do a few gentle runs sort of from side to side across the pitch and stretches and various bits and pieces that nobody wanted to stand next to Sol doing that running because like <laughs> he was he was getting so much stuff th- thrown yeah. at him and so much you know really really deeply unpre- unpleasant uh vitriol that it was it was actually not genuinely not nice to be next to or be around there were effigies of soul down the tottenham high road hanging from pubs i mean it it can go a little bit far but lee you said i remember you said on this podcast that you like taking penalties um yeah. in front of away fans oh, did you yeah, felt did. the same I'd way have, at white hart lane i'd have done so i'd have back heeled it or something it would have been great <laughs> I, I know i never got We'd a have chance loved to you take forever a for that it's tottenham so um i wasn't on them then but i would have loved I, yeah anything that you know i was the Remember when uh, when it all kicked off on the pitch and was it Freddie who got sent off? Fred, did Freddie get sent off one game? It all went off and I, it was just it, it was just it, it was so hateful and it was and there's something about the the right Ian there's something about that that atmosphere that um, that is um, I don't know why we're attracted to it and it's not you know when it's all done and dusted let's all shake hands and. You know, go for a drink in the pub or something, but that's not how football makes us. It makes us, you know, animalistic and um, very tribal, and and that's the beauty of of it. And it's also the 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 ugly side of it as well. Lee, it's been lovely talking to you as always. Thanks for joining us. Back to my boxes. See you later. Back to your boxes. See ya. To celebrate the return of the Premier League, we're offering listeners a 30-day free trial with The Athletic for a limited time only. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod to sign up. Enjoy all of James and Amy's articles, as well as those from our other great writers, including David Ornstein, of course, between now and the end of the season. That's theathletic.com forward slash Arsenal pod. Yes, uh, thank you to Lee Dixon uh, for his uh, brilliant insight, as always, and just the idea of him backheeling a penalty against Spurs at White Hart Lane. Um, by the way, uh, the game we were talking about, um, it was... Uh, Tyre has just sent us a um, the 11 dirtiest matches in Premier League history, um, one of which is Tottenham 2, Arsenal 1 from November 1999 with an excellent picture of Freddie Lundberg. Uh, is he punching? It's sort of... It's sort of 
he's certainly pushing Justin Edinburgh's, is it Justin Edinburgh's, Edinburgh's chin? I'm not sure. But Lee Dixon is very heavily involved in that as well, I would say. And Freddie got sent off uh, in that game. Now, uh, you've been uh, scribbling away, both of you. Uh, James, uh, you wrote a piece about the ongoing saga. That is uh, Matteo Guendouzi. Um, he's currently training alone or with a fitness trainer. And there doesn't seem to be any end in sight for this little uh, kerfuffle. No, and I have to say it's disappointing. We did a news story with David Ornstein um, just talking about the fact that Ganduzi, as you say, is just working with a fitness coach. He's away from the first-team squad. Uh, and certainly the impression I was given is that Mikel Arteta feels he's had ample opportunities to set things straight and sort of make the amends that, that Arteta feels he needs to do, and he hasn't. And I think at this crucial point of the season with so many games, tired legs, a player not being prepared to do what's necessary to make himself available for selection. Mm. It's a real shame, isn't it? Because he he is a talented boy. I don't think anyone disagrees about that. And he's, in theory, the kind of player Arsenal needs. You know, an energetic young central midfielder. Great. If he goes, we'll need another one of those. But it does feel a bit like the writing is on the wall at this point. But Amy, I was reading the piece that James wrote and there was I didn't know about the, the fact that it, you know, he had trouble at his previous club, uh, Lorient, was it? Um, Lorient, yeah. And he's, he's been disciplined there as well. Yeah, but he's a very young... I mean, I remember Robin Van Persie showing up from, uh, was it Feyenoord all those years mm. ago? And he came with a, a, a reputation for having had plenty of disciplinary um, moments when he was a, a young youngster in Holland. Um, and it was a big question mark, for example. And there was none of that really in evidence at Arsenal. I think when he arrived... Uh, he, he he quickly looked around and had people like Dennis Bergkamp to look up to, for example, which for a young Dutch yeah. player is obviously immense. Um, I, I, do, I don't think that what he's done in his teens or in his boyhood development uh, in another country should be an issue. I think what's an issue is what he's doing now. And as James says, it's almost beyond belief for a young player to put themselves in that situation where they're not being selected. I mean, that's a pretty severe level of sanction and distancing from the group. And yeah, I'm sad about it too, but interesting how Danny Ceballos has grasped that opportunity. And I I think that that might not have happened had Guendouzi um, been more uh, available, learned his lesson and been doing the things that Arteta wants him to do because Let's be honest, at the moment, um, Guendouzi is an Arsenal player and should be for next season unless he gets sold. Whereas Danny Ceballos isn't going to, you know, is, to buy him is going to cost a lot of money or otherwise there needs to be another loan arrangement or he goes away. So you'd probably be trying to put your heads in the basket of the players who are, you know, your future. And that should be Guendouzi, but it definitely looks very... Uh, unsure as to what that future is now. Well, this sort of comes around, James, to to what we were talking about earlier because we were talking about um, Emmy Martinez yeah. grabbing the opportunity. You also wrote a piece about him as mm. well. And it's the same sort of thing with Danny Ceballos. He's in that team. I mean, obviously, he's a class player, but he's he's in that team partly because Guendouzi's misbehaviour. And he has certainly grabbed that opportunity with both hands. And you can definitely say the same about Emi Martinez. Yeah. On the other hand, I am absolutely delighted for Emi Martinez because he's been at Arsenal a long time, 10 years now. 
and I think he's now played 11 Premier League games across that 10 years and they're not all starts. So it, it is a great story of persistence, really. He had so many loan spells and they didn't all really go to plan. He had one at Sheffield Wednesday that was quite difficult, one at Wolves where he was sort of in and out of the side. He had a spell at Reading in 2019 that really changed things for him. I think he was there six months and he might well have been voted Reading's Player of the Year. He was just outstanding for them, really. They tried to keep him, but there was never any chance of that Arsenal had been really impressed by what they saw and I've been really impressed by the way he's taken to life in the Premier League I mean for a guy who sort of knows this is his big shot he is incredibly calm it strikes me like he's very reassuring presence there was one shot in the Leicester game and I forget who it was by but it was struck with some real ferocity and what was striking about Martinez was not that he made the save but that he made it and he held the ball you know, he kept yes. it close to him. His handling has been pretty immaculate. And similarly, when he comes for crosses, which isn't all the time, but he could maybe come a little bit more of his line. But when he does come, he'll take it with two hands. And maybe it's a bit old-fashioned to me, but I, I like to see that in a goalkeeper. Well, that was interesting what James said, uh, Amy, because um, when we played Norwich and we were 2-0 up at half-time and it was all very nice, and then Norwich came out. And in the first minute, they had a, a really very, very good shot. Um, from just outside the penalty area. And again, uh, Emmy held it, didn't he? Because their player was coming in. These are the saves that change games. Yeah, he seems to be playing with really, really strong confidence at the moment, which again, considering, you you know, this is that big chance he's been waiting for, it will be easy to be almost putting so much pressure Mm, on yourself mm. to make it good that you don't really relax and play your best football but he does seem quite relaxed out there on the pitch which is impressive and I really if we're just picking out praise I loved the way it wasn't really a save per se but that he ran full pelt at Adama Traore up at Wolves and kind of put him off Um, because you know Traore could quite easily have probably scored that opportunity but I think not many people would wouldn't be intimidated by the sight of Traore running full pelt at you. But then again, Martinez running full pelt at Traore is probably a little bit intimidating as well. He's a big guy and he's very uh, he's very sure of himself. So it's been fantastic. I think when Leno went off uh, with that with that very worrying injury, there were people who thought, God, this could be this is a lot of games for a second choice keeper without experience and some people did fear the worst and wonder about if it was going to be a very long injury. Might Arsenal need to go and buy a replacement for next season or whatever? The good news is it looks like Leno's going to be back. But certainly looks like there's a bit of a fight going on. And I'm not sure many people expected that as Leno was being stretched off the pitch. So absolutely brilliant on Martinez to have, to have made such an impression. And may he have an absolutely, may he be very unbusy on the weekend. Well, he's got some big games coming up, hasn't he? We're really going to find out a lot about him. By the way, on the subject of imposing goalkeepers, I don't know if any of you caught the moment on television last night where um, Matt Macy walked past Kasper Schmeichel and Schmeichel started laughing and you could lip read him saying he's massive because Matt Macy is an absolute giant of a man. Yeah. Six yeah. foot seven, I did I see that. I did see that and it did was a very funny look. Um <laughs> Uh, Amy, um, you wrote a piece. I mean, we've talked about Bukayo Saka uh, an enormous amount in the last few months, uh, rightly so, because he's a star. Uh, you wrote a piece about him and he was, you know, when he started out, he, when he was eight, when he first turned up at Hale End. And as you said, it doesn't always work out. It, it, I, I guess it rarely does actually work out. But 
How early did you see him and realise that maybe we got a potential superstar on our Um, I mean, I would mainly just have to credit the word of people who are, uh, you, you know, who do see a lot more of these players, and sometimes, you know, they, they, they put a name to you and see, oh, you know, we got quite a good one coming through, and it's always said with a sort of quiet hopefulness rather than, you know, you get that nod and a wink, like as if a coach it's really got higher hopes for a player to go all the way rather than nobody can put their um put their hat on any kid coming through and I, I spoke to a guy called Roy Massey who was at Hale End for I think about 16 years in the end and his responsibility was for the boys who came in at that kind of pre-academy age group of seven and eight even before you can sign properly up to about under 12 level and so he so all these kids uh, who've come through lately, uh, Ainsley Maitland-Niles, Reese Nelson, Bukayo, Joe Willock, etc., came through uh, under Roy's sort of guidance at that very early stages. And he, a couple of things that he noticed about Bukayo that he always felt stood him in good stead was that he was really strong uh, as a boy. He was He was one of the more physically advanced kids of his age group. And so when they're making assessments, when they're quite little, he said, sometimes you, you're really careful because the kids that look like they're running the show because they're so, they're so more physically advanced maybe than some of their peers, you almost think, well, let's wait till everyone else catches up and see if, he's, if, if they're still ahead of the game. Because he did look ahead of the game right from the get-go, but I think they almost didn't want to go overboard because they thought, well, let's wait and see. And they, he actually mentioned Joe Willock as being someone who was, who was one of the... Um, less developed physically and he did more, most of his kind of bulking up um when he you know in the last sort of three or four years so they all do develop at different rates um but he did say that because always had this left foot and and always had this power um that 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 made him stand out and the other thing that they liked about him is that he was such a good boy and obviously when you've got kids coming through and you're working with them over the years you know, some are going to be a bit more trouble than others. And I think he came from a, a really, really supportive family. And he ke he grew up in um, uh, West London near Ealing. When, you, when you're in the academy at that age group, you're coming maybe three or four times a week. So to get round from one side of London to the other after school, when you're eight or nine or 10 or 11 or whatever, it's an hour and a half each way. So that's like three hours in the car just just you know without even doing your training or doing whatever's going on while you're there and i think he said he used to fall asleep in the car a lot on the way from school yeah. and his dad would always take him and sometimes you eat badly or you don't eat kind of at the right times when you're a kid because they're they're living this crazy life you know because they've got to go to school as well and do all the normal stuff and i think that uh Bukayo's dad was, uh, uh, you know, quite a disciplined guy and he absolutely made sure that Bukayo was there every single session on time and respectful and listened to his coaches and learnt well and was a good lad. And that helps, actually. Um, it's not always, the diff you know, if you are an absolute genius and you're a bit of a bad lad, then they don't stop you. But, I mean, it certainly can be something that's helped him and the fact that all his coaches all along, going through all the age groups, right up to when he came under... Freddie's wing and that's when people started to most start to pay a bit of attention to him and then that there was that sense of him being promoted um through to the fringes of the first team and then it's just gone you know a whirlwind from there but all his coaches like the fact that you know here's a w very willing learner 
you give him a, instructions, and I think it's clear that Arteta feels the same way. He will do everything to do what you want him to do. Yeah, you just feel like Matteo Guendouzi should listen to that. James, you just want to be um, you just want to be proud of him, don't you? When you when you watch him, and Saka is the sort of guy that we, you know, if he's a future Arsenal captain at some point, we'd all like that, wouldn't we? Yeah. And listen, I mean, where do players write their folklore? It's in games like the North London derby. And the way that Saka's been making an impact of late, you know, you wouldn't bet against it. I mean, I don't want to put pressure on the kid, but he he just is an absolutely ready-made Premier League player. And the fact that he's going to improve and get better. You know, I think I actually saw a quote from Emi Martinez talking about Saka and Martinelli. And he was saying, these guys aren't just going to be stars at Arsenal. They're going to be stars in football. And I think even though there are sort of diff- lot, plenty of difficult moments this season, maybe in years to come we'll look back on it and be grateful for the playing time that those kids got because they could be really, really significant players for this football club in the very near future. I mean, imagine if Arsenal this summer had to, you know, attempted to go and buy a Bukayo Saka or, or a Martinelli one year down yeah. the line. It's just that they're already out of reach almost financially. So you've got to credit the people who have done that business to get, you know, to, to either nurture them in the case of Saka or get them in early enough in the case of Martinelli. And the fact both of them just signed new deals is such wonderful news for the club. It certainly is. Amy, a quick word on uh, on um, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. 50 goals in uh, 79 games. Quicker than Thierry Henry. I think he's got 52 now, hasn't he? Um, he's not He's not stopping. Uh, I... I I mean, I think he's a marvel of a player, and has been pretty much the whole time he's been at the club. And I, but I still find it fascinating that a guy of his statistical goal-scoring brilliance doesn't really play centre forward. And I'm, I'm in two minds about it. And I was watching the game yesterday, and you know, when when some of the chances are going begging, and you, you know, you wonder if he was Johnny on the spot in the middle, whether he would have got that second goal, and you know, maybe those points could have been secured before the you know the way the game turned with the sending off and, and the Leicester equaliser I mean on, on the one hand I totally get how Arteta is convinced that at the moment with the players we have Aubameyang sort of pretty much has to play on the left it doesn't seem to massively affect his goal scoring because he still gets loads of goals and assists and he does have that freedom but he also puts in such an intelligent kind of shape and defensive shift for the team you almost wonder if anyone else can really give of that uh, we don't know because we're only he's only really p- playing one way he's started one game up front since Arteta's been the manager and all of the rest of the time he's been on the left um, and I kind of I struggle with it myself thinking you know should he be in the middle or should he be on the left and I, I, I don't I don't I can't I haven't convinced myself one way or the other it, I can see real attractions in both um, but I think the the job of our centre forward at the moment, with the way Arteta is playing, is quite a gruelling one. You know, uh, any any of the games that I've been fortunate enough to be in the stadium for, if you listen uh, through the the audio where you don't have the crowd noise, I don't know if it comes across the same way. But honestly, the entire sort of first half, I'd say ninety percent of the instructions that Arteta said were like a like a like a. like. It was just constant, and he wasn't getting on his back. I must stress this. It was more of a sense of like making, yeah, just making sure that he was in the position that he needed to be to keep the press going or to keep the possibility of the press starting. Um, 
and he was constantly almost moving him around by his voice on the pitch. And I believe he's done exactly the same with Eddie when uh, when Eddie's up front. You can just say, Eddie, Eddie, Eddie. And um, that role is really important to the kind of football Arsenal are trying to play. And whether in the long term either of those guys are the answer or whether Aubameyang is the answer to do that right now, I don't know. Because I almost feel like with Oba, you've got to just give him that freedom to just find spaces to, to do damage, maybe without using up too much energy on the intense pressing stuff so it's kind of interesting but we'll see i can only imagine how many goals he would have got if he was playing under jose Mourinho. um <laughs> let's have um <laughs> let's have a song before we go amy do you have a song well, you've inspired me because i didn't have a song but uh dear listener we were talking ahead of the game about the need for a bukayo saka song and uh uh, uh yeah. ian stone's invention is to the tune of kumbaya so would that's you give us a rendition, please, Ian? Yeah, come on, Ian. I don't, I'm not sure that's a good idea, really. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you know, it's Kumbaya. We all know the tune. Uh, James, do you have uh, a song for us? Uh, well, I'll be honest. I was tempted by um, Upside Down in honour of Danny Welbeck's bicycle kick goal for Watford yesterday. <laughs> I was Great so, goal. I was so pleased for him. I mean, I think it's about two years since he scored in the Premier League. So many injury problems this season. Great guy. Really good player when he's fit. And a massive, massive goal for Watford. But, I mean, Tyo's made some pretty good suggestions. In terms of the derby, two tribes, Frankie goes to Hollywood. I mean, that's a pretty good option, I think. I was going to say in honour or in praise, but it's neither of those things. I was talking about Jamie Vardy. I was thinking, ain't that a kick in the head by uh, Dean Martin? Uh, we can have that as well. Um, uh, that's it. Uh, thank you to James and uh, also to Amy. Thank you to Lee Dixon and to Tyo, our producer. Uh, that was fun. North London Derby on Sunday. I hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, and thank you for listening. This has been the Handbrake Off podcast for The Athletic. Stay safe. Music.